Ledger's a writing podcast, and here you are listening to it. I'm Austin Wilson. Welcome to the show. This week, I talked to Alec Nevelali. He wrote a book called Astounding. It is a biography of John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, and L. Ron Hubbard, and also is kind of a biography or a uh, examination of the entire Western sci-fi genre uh, throughout the 20th century, and I guess kind of uh, the influence that Campbell and his peers, or uh, maybe his students, you should read the book and see what that means, um, and what, what influence they had on sci-fi. We go into all kinds of things, including all of the problematic aspects of most of the, the people involved in the biography, uh, from Campbell to Hubbard, though not as much. You know, Hubbard doesn't get covered in the book a ton because, as uh, Alec mentions in the interview, there are a lot of other resources out there for you to read about crazy old L. Ron Hubbard. Um, but the book's great. I loved it. I learned a lot of stuff about sci-fi in general and, and all of the writers mentioned that the Alec covers in the book. Uh, it was a Hugo Award finalist, um, as well as a Locus Award finalist. Um, and I think it is absolutely deservedly so. It's a, it's a really good book. Uh, I, I recommend it for any fans of sci-fi or anyone who just wants to read something interesting about uh, weird people who had maybe outsized influence on their surroundings and uh, the this thing that they loved that a lot of other people loved. Um, super good book. We also talk about his upcoming book about uh, Buckminster Fuller. Definitely sounds cool, so check that out too. You can also follow Alec on his website. Basically lists all of his social media and everything. It's nevelali.wordpress.com. So swing by there and see what you can find out. He mentions in the show that there are pieces that he kind of had to cut for time from astounding that he kind of ended up reworking into blog posts on his website. So if there's even more you want to learn about these wild people who uh, sort of created sci-fi in the 20th century, uh, yeah, swing by his website and you'll find a lot more of that stuff. Um, as for me, you can find my website, austinrwilson.com, as always, and my Twitter accounts, ledger underscore podcast and Austin R. Wilson. Um, I tweet about the show basically from both accounts, but Austin R. Wilson I, is a little more active, so swing by that if you want to see what I'm up to. I, there are always links to episodes of the show and all kinds of other stuff relating to books. Um, but as for now, yeah, let's jump right into my conversation with Alec Nevelali. Uh, welcome to the show, Alec Nevelali. Uh, thanks, Austin. I'm glad to be here. Happy to have you. Uh, super glad to talk. I, I finished your book, um, Astounding, your your biography of, of four different people, uh, I think maybe like two weeks ago, um, and I wanted to talk to you immediately. So I'm super happy that you could come on. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. And I'm glad it worked out. I don't want to assume, but I, I would say you're a, a huge sci-fi fan. Is that correct? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I... I, I um, I've been a science fiction fan for most of my life. Um, uh, although I, I will say it wasn't until I began to work on this project, uh, you know, this biography that I began to really dive into um, sort of the golden age period. Um, you know, I, I'd known these authors kind of been passing for a long time, but uh, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I said, you know, I should sit down and just kind of read through um, these novels and stories in a more serious way. Okay, so you said you've been a sci-fi fan all your life. So did you find you found it really early on when you were pretty young as a as a reader? Yeah, I would say my my story is, is typical enough. You know, I would say probably you know my, my gateway book was um, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle uh, when I was around eight or nine years old, and then um, around age twelve, you know, I, I discovered a lot of uh, novels like Dune, um, Ender's Game, um, some of the some of those classic books. Um, and then later on, uh, the X-Files was a huge show for me, kind of was like, you know, my real entry point into like a science fiction fandom. Um, and yeah, and I've been writing uh, short fiction and, and, uh, reading, uh, science fiction ever since. It's funny you mentioned age 12, cause there's that really famous quote. And I think it's originally by Peter Graham. I've, I tried to source it online and I think you even mentioned it in, in astounding in your, in your book. Um, when someone asked, you know, what was the golden age of science fiction? The answer is 12. The age of 12. Yes. Do you think that that's yes. accurate? Is that sort of just a quirky, funny way to say that's kind of a general sense of when people find the the genre and when it hits them the hardest? 
Well, I mean, speaking from my own experience and from what I've seen in, in others, um, something about that age is really special. Um, so, so there's a, one of my favorite people is, um, a film editor named Walter Murch, who's a really smart guy who worked on Apocalypse Now and, you know, a lot of uh, classic films. And, you know, he, uh, says that, um, you know, age 12, it's like, you're, you're basically too young to be obsessed by sex, right. Or the various things that distract you as a teenager, but you're old enough to kind of develop your own opinions and tastes. And so it's a really fertile moment. Uh, you know the stuff that you are exposed to at that point um, ends up, you know, often having a huge impact on your on your life. And you know, Merch's advice is, you know, to have like a happy career, you should um, focus on what you loved when you were twelve years old. And, and I've tried to follow that advice in my own life. Oh, really? Yeah. No, it's, it's, I think I think it's good. It's good advice. You know, what, what did you care about when you were, let's say, between ages ten and twelve? And, and you know, whatever that stuff mm. is, maybe you should think about, you know, like spending time. Thinking about these things as a as a grown up. Well, that's interesting that you you took it a, a way more literally than I thought would have uh, would have guessed. I mean, I I don't know that I've ever sat down and been like the things that I loved at twelve. Now, I mean, after reading the quote and looking at the stuff that I'm obsessed with now, I was like, oh, geez, yeah, I, I think it is the same things. But I almost felt like I was being judged, <laughs> which I think is probably more of a, a commentary on me as a person than it is as as the of the quote. Um, but you, right. you literally would, would think, okay, well, I loved these things when I was 12 and why did I love those things? And let's see if I can locate that passion in something else. I, I mean, to some extent, I mean, a lot of it is kind of retroactive. I, I look at what I've ended up doing in life and why I ended up, you know, thinking about these things. And there are often things that I discovered during you know, one crucial 18 month period when I was younger. And this is true of like the stories I've written uh, as a fiction writer. It's true of, you know, the nonfiction projects I've taken on, you know, they almost all can be traced back to that moment. That's awesome. That's really cool. And I, I think that probably holds true for me too. I mean, obviously for me, when I was uh, in between the ages of 10 and 13, Star Wars was a ridiculously huge thing for me. And mm-hmm. although that's cooled a little bit now, I still... I mean, I watched a trailer for the Star Wars Eclipse game that was just announced at the Game Awards yesterday, and it, it mm-hmm. looks amazing. So I, I think that probably holds true for me, too. And I I don't know. I, I always thought the quote made it seem like I was continuing to be childish. Um, but again, I think that's more right. commentary on me <laughs> than it is anything else. And, and it's not just science fiction fans. You know, uh, John Updike, I, I just, you know, happened to, to have been reading about him recently. And, you know, he said that he remained almost absurdly faithful to the values of his younger self. Um, and, and I think if you look at artists, writers, people in different creative fields, I think that's almost universally true. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I do think uh, you were talking about, was you said the, the editor of Apocalypse Now was talking about how you are young enough mm-hmm. that you can sort of... I mean, innocence is the thing that comes to mind where you can kind of immerse yourself in this thing without being overly worried about like, is this cool? And am I going to be, you know, made fun of for this thing? And I think it, I think it is a good idea to try and focus on that just to be like, Hey, I like this thing and I'm going to, I'm going to start aiming my life at, at this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like my daughter is, is going to turn nine soon. And so she's not quite there yet, but I, I do kind of, as a dad, I, I kind of intend to keep a close eye on what she ends up being into in the next couple of years. And so maybe, you know, years from now, she'll be wondering what to do. And I'll say, well, you know, when you were 10 or you were 12, you, you like this. And it, maybe it'll, it'll give her some, uh, some hints about uh, what to do going forward. Yeah. That's, that's a good idea. Um, so with sci-fi, um, well, I'm, I'm 37, you know, so I was born uh, in the, in the early, like close to basically mid eighties. So mm-hmm. when I grew up, um, sci-fi was still, was a little more accepted than it had been, uh, you know, at the time I was born. Um, but I still kind of felt like an outcast as I was, you know, diving into all of these things that I loved. Star Wars was obviously already a, a global phenomenon and sci-fi was, like I said, more accepted, um, you know, with in the quote unquote mainstream. Um, but I still kind of felt a little bit weird or like I was different than the people that I was growing up around. I mean, I grew up in the middle of the country, basically with a cornfield as my backyard. So sci-fi seemed, I mean, it's all of the things that you would say where, you know, I was using it as a form of escape, but also to, uh, kind of fertilize my imagination. Was it like that for you growing up? Did you feel like an outcast? Um, that's kind of a story you hear over and over again with with sci-fi creators or even just artists and creators in general. 
Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's pretty universal as well. And, you know, and I, I never know which way the causal arrow runs. You know, it's like, was I drawn to science fiction because I was an outsider or did I feel like an outsider because I liked science fiction? You know, it's it's kind of unclear. It's, it's all it's all rich tapestry, right? right? Um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's, I think that's very true. And I think, you know, um, to some extent, science fiction has become more mainstream in the past couple of decades, I would say. I think it's much less... Um, Outre to be into Star Wars or to you know like certain kinds of science fiction, but I think the the sense of being an outsider, uh, you know, probably still holds true for people who end up you know doing this stuff creatively. Yeah, I th- I think probably so too. I mean, do you think um, do you think people take science fiction seriously? I it's a, I I kind of don't know who I mean. Is it critics or or readers? Like, what do you think the overall sense of science fiction is? Is it throwaway to a lot of people is it just something to kind of fill the space or what's the larger sense of sci-fi do you think well yeah i mean it's just gotten so big you know i mean i mean at this point it's very hard to point to like a blockbuster movie for example that doesn't include elements of science fiction or fantasy um and that's true of tv more and more these days certainly other kinds of uh you know entertainment uh so you know it's hard to generalize um I, i would say that certainly um science fiction uh, as a as a genre, um, has gotten more critical attention in the past, you know, twenty plus years than in, um, I would say it had previously, um, and I think that's because a lot of writers who grew up reading science fiction are doing really great stuff, you know, uh, pushing against the the boundaries of that form um, in a way that critics have to take uh, notice of, and and I think that's that's a real trend, for sure, for sure, I agree. Um, it's all it's always interesting for me to see. You know, I, I follow what critics say uh, for, you know, certain genres more than I do others, obviously. And sci-fi is one of those because it's so dear to my heart and seeing the sci-fi books that they select, um, you know, Kazuo Oshiguro's, um book that just came out, the name escapes me for some reason, you know, sci-fi to the, to the max um, and obviously gets more attention than say, you know, uh, the newest Jack McDevitt novel or, or something like that. Um, and I think... I don't know. I, it sort of makes me wonder if the accept the acceptance of sci-fi hasn't hit the critics yet, or if it ever will. I don't know if that's pessimistic of me to wonder or not. Well, I also think that we're entering a period of crisis in, in some ways. It certainly feels that way for the last couple of years, and, and these are times in which science fiction becomes um, hugely relevant. You know, I, I think it's a genre that it, it defines itself in part by its ability to talk about stuff like cultural change. And, um, you know, it, it's it's actually very hard to write about the world as it currently is without um, drawing on some of those conventions. You know, like we were living, you know, as, as Isaac Asimov might have said, in a science fictional universe. And um, certainly, you know, uh, at, at times of... of accelerating change, uh, people tend to look at science fiction. So it, it's very hard to imagine writing even just a straight literary novel about the world as it currently is without, you know, drawing on some of those tropes. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. Yeah. The, the time we're in now, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, we're, we're literally living through a global pandemic currently. And mm-hmm. I mean, whether or not I thought that was ever possible, um, you know, it always was. Um, but the reality being, uh, I felt sort of insulated from that as a possibility. Um, I mean, even that just right there is kind of a science fictional concept in and of itself where I, you know, I felt so disconnected from the world in certain ways that that just was never a possibility to me. And, and here we are, you know, I'm interviewing you from a different state and we're talking over the internet. There's just a lot of science fictional aspects mm-hmm. to our lives now. Yeah, no, it's it's true, and and it's very hard um, to speaking of that, you know. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, I was going to say, you know, I I think a lot of people feel that you know uh, the world has become dystopian in some ways, and um, you know, again, it's it's very hard to talk about um, the current events without sounding like you're writing science fiction. Um, so speaking of your book, uh, you you mentioned Asimov and talking about how we live in a, a science fictional universe. Uh, your your book, astounding. Uh, it is, in fact a biography of four different people um, and also kind of a biography of the entire genre of science fiction uh, in, you know, the earliest 20th, 20th century, um, what we would kind of consider westernized sci-fi, uh, Western culture sci-fi. Um, 
I'm so curious how you how you ended up writing this book. Um, you mentioned you had been writing short stories and fiction since you were young. Um, I'm curious for uh, for about a couple of things. Had you been writing nonfiction when you were young? Um, and also, when it came time to start uh, writing Astounding, where did you start? How? It's just such a massive undertaking um, because you're you're dealing with four um, hugely influ- influential people, uh, influential characters, uh, on the the genre of sci-fi. So, um, when did you kind of start writing, uh, nonfiction seriously and how the heck did you start writing this, this book? So I'd always kind of seen myself as the kind of writer who could move between fiction and nonfiction. I I really enjoy writing both. And, um, you know, that's kind of the the career that I envisioned for myself. And um, I I began writing novels, uh, you know, professionally. And I've been writing um, short fiction for the the magazine Analog, um, which, um, you know, was was previously known as Astounding uh, for a while. Um, and I'd written a lot of like short nonfiction. I'd written a lot of essays and, and reviews, that sort of thing. But I hadn't really tackled a big nonfiction project until I got the idea for this book. And, and the way it kind of evolved was my original intention was to write sort of a survey of astounding science fiction magazine. And just look at, you know, read every issue or as much as I possibly could and kind of talk about how the genre evolved, you know, during those those years. And what I realized is that, um, you know, I, I kind of had intended to write a critical uh, uh, survey of, of the magazine, but I realized, you know, probably on the first day of looking into this possibility that there had never been a biography of John W. Campbell, who was the editor of Astounding and later Analog during probably its most famous period. And Campbell is such an interesting guy. He, he is an incredibly complicated, fascinating, controversial figure who deserves a big biography. And once I realized that book didn't exist, I was like, well, this is, this is it. This is the book I should be writing because someone's going to do it eventually. And I kind of want it to be me. So despite having not had um, a lot of experience with book length, nonfiction biography, I said, you know, I'll, I'll tackle this project and um, it, it kind of expanded from there because um, when I went out to publishers, the editor who took the book eventually said, Campbell is clearly a, a fascinating figure, but he is not quite famous enough to justify a book on the scale. Are there other writers you can bring into the story to make it more of a group biography? And I said, well, you know, you start with Campbell, you take you know that circle and expand it outward a, a tiny bit. And the, the first three names that fall into that um, you know, project would be Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, and L. Ron Hubbard. And my editor said, sounds good, because these are clearly incredibly well-known authors um, for various reasons. Um, and you can't really tell Campbell's story without them. So it kind of organically expanded to become a group biography. And, and as you point out, you know, a survey of the magazine of science fiction fandom, you know, and, and in some ways, you know, it, it's it's not a c- comprehensive history of the entire genre because that is much too big a project to fit into one book. But um, just focusing on Campbell alone and the, the authors that um, were part of his circle, it, it, it was it was pretty daunting. Um, you know, you, you kind of ask like where you start, and you know, the the really challenging part early on was just trying to get a handle on the primary sources and, and try to figure out what do I have to look at and where can I get this material, you know, to, to write this book in any kind of comprehensive way. Because we're talking about reading through hundreds of novels and short stories from that period. You're talking about trying to track down every issue of the magazine and at least looking at every page to see if there's stuff there that's useful that no one has, has seen before. Um, it's uh, trying to find letters um, which are scattered in all kinds of archives, uh, you know, that are um, accessible or not to various degrees, and and finally to talking to people, you know, to tracking down Campbell's family, to talking to uh, the, the handful of writers who are still around who knew Campbell well uh, firsthand. Um, so you know, the first year or so of this project was essentially just spent trying to get the ball rolling on all these fronts. Uh, and it, it took a long time. It, it, it was it was very challenging just to kind of assemble the raw materials that I would need to write this book in any kind of, um, you know, reasonable way. So is, is that something you did? Did you grab, did you get a hold of, or at least see, you know, digital copies of every issue that Campbell edited of Astounding slash Analog? 
Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately for me, a lot of these issues have been scanned. Um, and so I was able to get scans of every issue of uh, Astounding Science Fiction. I had to kind of go to eBay and like other sources to assemble um, my uh, analog uh, science fiction collection. Um, I still have a big pile of those magazines. And, and I really did try to turn every page, you know, because um, obviously the stories are, are hugely important. But, you know, even things like the letters columns, Campbell's editorials, the ads are often fascinating, the the, the, the nonfiction articles. So, you know, I, I had to do that. Um, I had to find Campbell's letters, you know, which um, some of which have been published, but uh, many of which were only available in, in microfilm um, because a fan named uh, Perry Chapdeline had um, acquired Campbell's archives, uh, I believe in the late 70s. And uh, he he microfilmed them, um, but they weren't available in any other form, or at least not in a way I could conveniently get to. And so I had to get those, those microfilm reels from the Library of Congress or other sources and just go through them, again, just kind of page by page, because you never know. Like I, I found things that I never would have found if I hadn't sort of methodically gone through everything that I possibly could. Oh yeah, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the the glimpses that you get into who Campbell was as a person. Um, I think it's two two parts: uh, his letters, but then also, like you mentioned, those those editorials he was writing um, in Astounding, which I kind of had absolutely no idea about until I read your book. Um, you get a really, really, I think kind of a complete picture of who he was because you're, you're seeing things he's saying to people personally. And then that transitions into him talking about like Dianetics and editorials. And um, it's, it's pretty amazing to see that picture start forming. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and you know, I, I was going to say too, that, you know, with Campbell, you know, I said there was no biography of him until this book came out, which is true. But, you know, there are lots of um, memoirs about him that are kind of scattered in other books by science fiction writers. You know, Asimov talks about him a lot in his memoirs. You know, almost any science fiction writer who uh, was active during that period, you know, they have often published um, autobiographies and they'll have like a chapter about Campbell. So, like, trying to track all those down and trying to assemble all those sources was was a challenge, too. So was that something that you, was that a process you started um, before a publisher had signed on? Or was that something that you kind of waited until you knew the book was going to come together? I'm super interested in that process. And when you have the green light um, from yourself uh, to start putting work into it, um, as opposed to when the green light from an actual publisher came, is there a, a timeline where those differ? Yeah, that's actually a great question. Um, so to, to sell this this book, I had to write up a proposal, which ended up being, I think, about seventy five pages long. So it was like a fairly substantial uh, document, and for that, I was able to um, draw on things like uh, Asimov's memoirs. Um, I think maybe I had read the one volume of Campbell's letters that um, was published in paperback. Um, so like, you know, like sources that were fairly accessible, um, but it wasn't until I had a contract in hand that I said, okay, I have to start tracking down these, these documents because um, it was, it was, uh, you know, quite a journey, uh, you know, cause I had to track down the, the letters, get them copied. I had to reach out to Campbell's family who no one had talked to in a long time. Um, I had to do what I could to reach out to other writers. So I would go to conventions and, um, you know, conferences to try to talk to people like Robert Silverberg, um, who, you know, again, like the handful of people who can talk about these, um, these writers firsthand. So, you know, I, I did a little bit of, uh, work in advance of getting, um, a contract, but you know, the, the, the bulk of it. I, I had to kind of wait because it was not a trivial process. It was something that I, you know, knew would take a while to, you know, kind of get started. At what point, I mean, or did, did you ever in the process be like, this is crazy. Like, I don't know if I can get all of this together and turn this into uh, a narrative. Um, was, was there ever a point where that felt like the case? Because you cover a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, there are a few times when the amount of material I had to read uh, was kind of daunting. Because um, I haven't even mentioned, you know, I had to read a lot of these stories for the first time, you know, the, the fiction, uh, which obviously is the heart of this of this narrative. Um, 
And so I had to like look at anthologies and lists of, you know, the top books of, uh, you know, that period. Cause you know, I mean, I, I couldn't read everything, but I was like, okay, I should at least read all the obvious stories. I should read everything I can about, um, that, that Campbell wrote that these other writers wrote. Um, so that was like many months of just sort of working my way through the fiction, which was really exciting and fun, but yeah, it, it was, it was a lot. Um, the one thing that I I think I had working to my uh, benefit is the fact that Campbell's life is so dramatic and it kind of falls very neatly into almost like a three or four act structure um, where, you know, he, he became a famous science fiction writer within that world when he was still in college. And you know, he wrote Who Goes There, which later became the thing, uh, you know, adapted as the thing three times for the movies when he was only 27 years old. And then basically became editor of Astounding and had a great run. Uh, and then you have the war, you have all the stuff with Hubbard and Dianetics, you have sort of this weird period where Campbell becomes, you know, really into psychic powers and, and pseudoscience and this kind of tragic ending where he's essentially estranged himself from a lot of his, his old writers and friends. So, you know, the, the story is there, you know, he, his, his life has this like very satisfying arc to it that I could always fall back on whenever I felt overwhelmed by the material. Yeah, that was one thing I, w- I was really curious about is um, with nonfiction and specifically biography, you know, you have that kind of natural end point built in where it's like, OK, I'm writing about a person who's dead so I can take the reader from essentially birth, depending on if you want to do the David Copperfield route and talk about, you know, I'm born or, you know, their, their genre birth, so to speak, where he, he starts the, the science fiction of the 20th century. Um, was that the same for, for Asimov and Heinlein and Hubbard? I mean, obviously Hubbard's life is, I obviously, I think of those four, he's the one that people have a little bit more uh, preconceived notions about because of Scientology and all of that. But was it always like, okay, I'm going to tell, like you said, John W. Campbell's, uh, you know, kind of life story. And then these other guys, um, not their entire life, because I think Campbell is the the main focus, but it really is, you know, three other people and, and they end up, you, you take the readers to their deaths, so to speak, even if it's not literal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, structuring the book was a little bit challenging because, um, as you point out, you know, the other writers in the subtitle are all incredibly interesting people and they had very eventful lives. And in many cases, I, I couldn't really cover, you know, uh, stuff that um, is it's obviously interesting, uh, but has been um, explored more than adequately elsewhere. So Hubbard, for example, I, I probably spent maybe five pages on his uh career in the 70s, which is the sort of classic, the Sea Org Scientology period that, you know, is really interesting. Um, but number one, you know, other books have kind of covered this stuff quite well before before I got there. And number two, you know, he, he and Campbell weren't really in touch. And so whenever I was like trying to figure out how to structure the book, I, I had to say, well, you know, is Campbell there? Is Campbell involved? And so with Asimov and the others, I, I tended to focus on periods and episodes where Campbell was in the room or where Campbell was a part of the story. Um, and the rest, I would have to summarize just enough to kind of give the readers some context. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the book would have been 10 times the length it is now. And you mentioned, you know, uh, in, in your acknowledgments, you talk about how, yes, writing a, a history of sci-fi is uh, kind of an impossible task. It's just so massive. Um, but then also, uh, you just mentioned how they're all interesting in their own rights. And some of those things uh, leapt out at me, like, for instance, Robert A. Heinlein was a nudist. I mean, it was just a, a crazy thing that I had never known. Um, and I, why I would know that, I don't know. But, you know, finding out in your book, I was like, oh, wow, that's... I would have, I would have never even known that I should guess at something like that. Is there other stuff uh, for for Asimov and Hubbard? Obviously, Hubbard, you know, he's been documented in Lawrence Wright's book, Going Clear, and a lot of other places. But were there great things where you're like, oh my gosh, I want to include this, but I just can't make it work narratively? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to include all the good stories I could, you know, and certainly, um, you know, anything that. It took place during kind of like the, the the golden age period, I would say between 1938, 39 and, and 1950. Um, I, I tried to include every every good story I could. Um, 
obviously there's stuff outside that uh, timeline that you know I, I just can't get at. So if you, you know, if you read Asimov's memoirs, or you read um, William uh, H. Patterson's like two volume Heinlein biography, or you read Going Clear, you know, there, there are obviously like lots of great stories there that I couldn't cover. Um, but you know, I, I try to include, especially if I found something that I hadn't seen before. You know, like information that had not been covered elsewhere. You know, I, I tried to make sure to include that. You got a lot in there. Uh, there's a lot of really good stuff in there. And I was constantly reading portions out loud uh, to people and just being like, did you know this? This is crazy. Uh, so good job. You got a lot of stuff in there. Um, I'm specifically curious about what it feels like for you to write fiction versus nonfiction. Um, cause you, you know, you're also a very accomplished, uh, fiction author. You've gotten pos- uh, work published in analog and, uh, light speed and, uh, you've written novels. And I, I really want to know if there's a, if you can tell a difference, um, I guess maybe mentally or even in some kind of indefinable sense, what it feels like to write fiction versus nonfiction. And, um, if if you hit a wall in in either sense how do you deal with it is it different or are you using the same muscles no matter what um i think my approach is actually pretty similar um or the, you know at least the kinds of fiction that i tend to write uh the, the challenges are are similar because I, I i for whatever reason i'm drawn to uh fiction that tries to push the envelope in terms of how much information the reader can absorb you know my my, my three novels they're all kind of in the conspiracy fiction uh genre which um, I've always thought it was like really fascinating because of that that challenge. Because a lot of it is giving the reader information, and how do you do that in a way that's compelling and and interesting? And same issue here, right? I had to cover a lot of ground with this book, and you know, I, I ended up falling back on a lot of the things that I, I use as a as a novelist. You know, like you want to end on a cliffhanger with every chapter. You want to sort of tease, um, you know, what's coming up. You want to establish certain things that will pay off later on. So, so those those skills, I think, were actually like pretty transferable. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I, I've learned to do as a fiction writer is to always ask, you know, what does the protagonist want at any given time, right? That's sort of the key to fiction. You know, somebody wants something and what's, what's, what do they do to get it? And, and I think about that a lot in terms of the people I write about as a biographer, because, um, you know, it, it's very easy for a biography to become a sequence of, you know, this happened and then this happened. And so to give it a little bit of structure, I have to ask myself, so what, what did someone like Campbell want? You know, what, what were his objectives and, and what did he do to achieve them? You know, and, and often it's not something that someone does consciously, but when you look at someone's life from that point of view, certain patterns do emerge, you know, and, and I think it's, it's a useful, if nothing else, it's a useful conceit to help structure a book. Um, and, and again, that's something that I've learned directly from writing fiction. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think that's a, a good way to think about it. And, and you know, that's one of the questions uh, a lot of writing classes or, you know, people talking about um, the the act of writing and the craft of writing, you know, trying to find out everyone wants something, whether it's a protagonist or a secondary character. Um, and I, I thought about that a lot while I was reading Astounding about um, understanding who each character was and what they were after and... Um, like you said, having it not turn into just a, this happened and this happened. Um, and I, I really felt like the, the sense that I got of Asimov was one of the more shocking, um, narratives in the book where he starts out as this, this really young man who's showing this sort of, uh, like kind of religious deference to John W. Campbell. Um, and it was, it was pretty shocking to me, honestly, because that's not who Asimov is in my head. Yeah, no, I mean, that was a huge discovery for me as well, because, um, you know, I mean, I I went in without a lot of preconceived notions about any of these people, and I was often surprised by what I found. Um, You know, the the book is actually very hard on these these writers in some ways, and, you know, that was not, you know, I I didn't go in with an agenda, you know, to try to take them down or to, you know, criticize them. But, you know, there are certain things that emerge, you know, from the sources, and Asimov's a story is, is uh, you know, clearly, you know, it, it requires that we adjust our picture of a man who in some ways was the most famous science fiction writer in America. And he had a very distinctive, you know, public persona that, um, you know, was only partially true. And I think that's true of 
um, his his work with Campbell and how uh, deeply Campbell informed things like the Three Laws of Robotics and the Foundation series, and later on too, like you know Asimov's uh, you know behavior toward women. You know he was a serial groper. You know, he probably touched. Um, hundreds of women, you know, without their consent over the course of decades. And again, something that is kind of there in his memoirs that um, no one had really talked about. You know, it certainly wasn't something that I had thought about until I, I began this project. But, you know, as you write this kind of book, you just discover these things that, you know, you, you have to um, engage with in a responsible way. Right. And and as you said, yeah, the book is, is not easy on them. Um, I really do think you do a great job balancing talking about those aspects um, while also talking about the the grander idea of their effect on sci-fi. And I mean, obviously I, we, we can't, you know, skip past uh, Campbell's racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, his sexism, all the, like when Jeanette Ng won for best new writer and, and talked about changing the, the name of the, the award from the John W. Campbell um, award, um, it got changed very quickly uh, after that. And there's actually a New York Times article where your book is cited and they quote you in the article. And, and you said uh, uh, it was the, clearly the right call. You know, at that point, uh, the, the diversity uh, of everyone writing sci-fi is just not in line with, with who Campbell was. And how, like, wh- at what point in the writing did you discover more and more um, about who Campbell was and who the rest of these men were and kind of talk to me about the process of, of striking that balance of not making the book just like, look at how disgusting these people actually were. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it comes out of the, the sources, you know, I, I definitely, it, it's, it's very hard to read Campbell's editorials, especially after a certain point and not feel that, you know, there are some issues here. Uh, same with his letters and, you know, a, a lot of the personal, uh, you know, encounters that people have talked about, um, you know, and this is true of all all the major figures in this book. And you know, I, I always say this: like, I I, I want to pay them the compliment of taking them seriously, because I think there's often a temptation in science fiction um, where a, a lot of the books about science fiction writers are written by fans, and, and they tend to be kind of uncritical. And you know, as, as a reader, even if I don't know much about the subject firsthand, I can always kind of tell when a book is um, apologizing or or avoiding certain subjects. So a, a book like uh, Patterson's Heinlein biography, which is a huge you know work of scholarship, it's two volumes. It's you know it's massive you know like like work of biography. But you know, I mean, almost every page you're aware of him taking Heinlein's side. Um, and kind of, you know, trying to create a, a version of him that does not reflect my understanding of what it takes to become that kind of person. Um, and again, it's it's kind of intuitive, right? But I, I one thing I've learned writing about these people and about other people is that, you know, to become a, a certain kind of um, figure, right, in culture or in world history, um, it, it comes at a cost. Right, it's never. There are always trade-offs, often, often personal trade-offs. And as someone who, you know, finds that kind of story very interesting and instructive, I, I see it as kind of my job to uncover some of those consequences. Because if you don't talk about that stuff, then you're not giving. It's it's not useful to me. You know, I I, I want to be useful as a writer, and and I think it actually helps a lot to understand someone's achievement to say, you know, so what. What um, did it cost him? You know, um, what, what did it cost the people around him? And, and, and that that sort of thing emerges like very clearly when you look at the original sources. For sure, yes, I think that's a, a good way to think about it. Um, so, do you think? Uh, and one of the things uh, Jeanette Ng said um, is, you know, it's time to move past Campbell as a sort of measurement of of what sci-fi is, or a person who's. Um, she said that he's responsible for setting a tone, uh, for science fiction that haunts the genre to this day, which is, you know, stale, sterile, male, uh, white and, uh, exulting in imperialism, colonialism. Um, is that something that you had a sense of before you kind of looked into more who Campbell was, or, um, is that something that you, as you were reading more about who he was, you're like, oh yeah. The thing that I've noticed is he's constantly telling people, no, no, readers want heroes. And 
his idea of what heroism was, um, you know, is very limited. Um, where did you have any perception of that before this? Um, I mean, I, I think I was aware of it in that I'm aware of how science fiction has evolved, you know, as a whole, you know, since the Campbell years. Um, you know, one thing that I was not aware of um, that I thought was really interesting was, you know, the extent to which this reflected Campbell's personal tastes. You know, he was so powerful, um, you know, at least, or, or he was perceived as being so powerful, you know, for many years that, you know, he really could impose this vision on science fiction. You know, the idea, as you say, that it's about heroes, it's about people with agency, uh, it's about, you know, um, people who solve problems. And, um, you know, it, it sort of feels like, you know, naturally, this is what science fiction is about, at least, it, you know, for a certain period. But, you know, I mean, it, a lot of it was Campbell's doing. A lot of it um, was a reflection of his preferences as, as a writer and as an editor. And, um, you know, one thing that I think we're, we're actually even just starting this conversation about Campbell, it, it's, it's very easy to reject the more obviously problematic aspects of his legacy, but there are also aspects of his legacy um, that produced science fiction that we still like, you know, that, that we respond to in a certain way um, that also needs to be scrutinized. And, and I don't think we're even quite there yet. I, I think we're still talking about things like how does this notion of science as, or as, um, you know, the, the idea that every problem can be approached as a subset of engineering, uh, you know, how did that affect the way people try to solve problems in the real world? You know, like I, I think one issue we've seen in the past year or two, or, you know, and even further back is this idea of people trying to enact a uh, science fiction story in real life and trying to embody that kind of hero, which, you know, obviously is a great protagonist for a work of fiction. But, you know, as Campbell's life shows, when you try to become that person for real, you know, it can cause a lot of problems. Yeah, I think um, it, that is interesting to think about. Yeah, I, I don't think we're there uh, either. And and seeing how the world at large kind of takes sci-fi as a concept. Um, I mean, the metaverse is a great example. You know, um, Neil Stevenson writes um, Snow Crash and here we are now where people are like, Oh, we're going to create the metaverse. And I mean, there are plenty of articles out there about this. Like, Oh man, you really missed the point of this novel. Um, and you know, I've seen a lot of people saying, uh, now there is a, an adaptation of foundation on Apple TV plus, And I've seen a lot of people be like, man, this show's got an imperialism problem. And I think, yeah, it, it does seem like we're not there yet. Um, do you think we'll get there? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, w one thing I thought about is, you know, like we, uh, you know, I, I don't really have like a great like conclusion here, but it's an issue I've thought about a lot. It's like, you know, our, our story is good for us. You know, the, the way in which we're encouraged to see our lives as narratives and see the world around us as a narrative, you know, it, it I think, you know, it can be dangerous. I, I, I think it, you know, stories work best in many cases when they're about one person solving problems. And I understand that, you know, it, it makes for, for really compelling fiction. But, you know, you see that same impulse in real life and, um, you know, it, it's not as clear cut. And, and I don't really have a great answer to that question. Yeah, I, I think stories obviously also, you know, like you said, um, using stories as a way for us to define our own lives, obviously that goes only to a certain distance because the uh, most of the stories are at least good ones. You know, they're not going to include somebody just like sitting and doing nothing. <laughs> and that's what life includes sometimes. Um, obviously we want to, you know, we're searching for meaning or at least a lot of people are searching for meaning. And sometimes you kind of have to flounder. And I don't know, I think, using stories to be like, well, I want my life to be like science fiction. Like you said, it's, it's just not possible. You know, you get to a point where that becomes obvious. Um, and that may be as harmful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting. Cause like, you know, I, again, I, I love these stories, you know, um, and I understand that the desire to kind of enact them in real life. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that science fiction is trying to do, and, uh, you know, this comes up in the book is to tell stories about people who are victims of change. Um, you know, like, like tell those stories, you know, they may not be as conventionally satisfying, but it's a hugely important thing that science fiction is, is equipped to explore. Right. 
And and in astounding, this was a thing that I was pretty shocked and and just kind of so interested in the idea of so Dianetics being essentially a creation of Campbell and, and Hubbard together. You know, they both gave aspects of it, but that they were convinced that science could solve literally everything, um, including like sadness. Um, I mean, uh, Campbell in in some cases mentions quote unquote, solving homosexuality, um, which is bonkers, um, for him to even say, um, but just the idea of being like, we're going to figure out the science of the mind and then everything's going to be fantastic forever. Um, seeing that trajectory where it's like, you got, this was the the craziest thing where <laughs> Campbell was like, I have complete control over my cells and I'm never going to die. <laughs> and I was completely blown away by that part. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I think I, I am proud of uh, that this book does is it kind of uh, restores Campbell to the center of that particular story. Because if you read like a lot of, uh, you know, existing books on Hubbard, even good ones, Campbell is often portrayed as kind of a victim or as a kind of like a, like someone who is swindled by Hubbard. Um, but if you look at the actual story, number one, you know, he, Campbell was a Hubbard's partner. They were, they were, you know, equal, equally involved in coming up with the principles, you know, that, um, that, you know, behind this therapy that, you know, Hubbard later, um, you know, went off with on his own. And it's an extension of themes that were in the magazine 10 years, 20 years earlier, you know, like this is stuff that Campbell was obsessed by from a very early age. And, and so, yeah, it's like a logical extension of Campbell's personality. So he was not just some, um, unwilling, um, you know, he was, he, you know, Hubbard didn't con him into believing into in these things. You know, Campbell was, was absolutely a part of it. Yeah. I loved reading that stuff. I, I really did. Um, the, the Dianetics thing was, was such an interesting aspect where you, you have them both working on it and, and you definitely see Campbell's influence, not only just on that, but on everything that, that these people were doing at the time. So it's definitely comes across, um, in your acknowledgments, uh, you mentioned your, your agent, David Halpern, um, and that he was really one of the, the keys for you to, to start this book. I'm, I would love to hear about how that came about, how the, the idea, how, what he, what role he played. I'm curious about a a relationship between a writer, um, and their agent, uh, and how this, how this book came out of, of you working with, with Mr. Halpern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Cause you know, you, you, you often don't hear about that aspect of the author agent relationship. You think of an agent as someone who's just negotiating deals, but you know, he, he can, you know, an agent can be a very helpful advisor in terms of trying to figure out your career. And, um, what had happened in my case is that, you know, I published three novels, which did okay, but not so well that like a fourth novel was a slam dunk. Um, and, you know, David essentially said to me, and, and, you know, he's someone who has done really good work on the nonfiction side. Um, you know, most of his clients, I think, are nonfiction writers. And he'd said, well, maybe it's time for a nonfiction project. And, uh, you know, and that was all he said, you know, and, and, uh, and I kind of took that to heart. And what I said, what I said to myself was, so if that's the case, then what is a subject that I can make a case for myself for as a writer? And the obvious answer was science fiction because I'd published an analog. I knew the editor. I knew a lot of writers, you know, uh, in that world. So, you know, it was a, a fairly small step from that conversation to me saying, all right, I'll write a book about the history of astounding science fiction. And that's kind of where it, uh, you know, began. So, yeah. So, it was definitely something that I don't think I would have um, – thought about doing if, uh, you know, I didn't have that, that kind of, um, advisor, you know, helping me to figure out what the next move would be. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So have you always been with Mr. Halpern or how did your, how did that relationship develop with him, him as your, your agent? So, you know, I, um, after college, you know, I went to New York and I had a lot of plans about becoming a novelist and I, I, um, actually, I, I worked, you know, at a sort of a conventional job for a few years and then I quit to write full time because I was like, there's no way I can write a novel and, and work a full time job at the same time. Um, and it took a while, you know, I, I wrote a whole novel, actually a science fiction novel that, um, was never published that I spent a couple of years on. And after that, um, I, I decided to write a thriller. Um, I had an idea for a suspense novel that was set in the New York art world. 
which I thought would just kind of be a one-off, you know, uh, self-contained story. Um, and I, you know, I, I was able to get a reference to to David uh, through um, a college friend who had worked at the agency. So it definitely benefited from being, you know, kind of at the right place at the right time. And it took a while, you know. I think I worked with David and his um, associates for about a year on a draft of that first novel before we felt it was ready to go out to publishers. So that, that's another aspect of, you know, the agent client, uh, you know, relationship that isn't often emphasized. It's that um, publishers have kind of outsourced in many cases, the uh, development process to agencies. Uh, I don't think an editor right now is going to spend a lot of time with a manuscript that just isn't there yet. And they expect agents to deliver, uh, you know, solid manuscripts. And that often means, like, in my case, like up to a year of work, just getting it, getting it ready, you know, for that first submission. So again, like, um, I, I can't I can't overstate how important you know that kind of support has been to me. Right. That's one of the interesting things about about the publishing industry and writing at, at large. I really am interested in those relationships that kind of don't get talked about a lot, um, because, like you said, yes it's not just you show up to your agent you're like, Hey, I've got this, this book. And they're like, it's great. I'm going to go sell it. There's a lot more work that goes into it. So I'm super interested to hear a lot about that. Yeah, no, I I think it's fascinating. You know, I'm I'm not asked about this stuff very often. So thanks for, for bringing some of the stuff up. For sure. Yeah. I, I, I love, I just love every aspect of the process, you know, of, of getting like, I know, how I sit down to write something and, and what I, what I do to get stuff ready. But I really love hearing about everyone's process. Um, just to, well, one, it helps me feel less alone sometimes. And that, yeah, that's always nice. Um, you are currently working, uh, according to your website on a biography of Buckminster Fuller. Um, how's that going? Is there anything you can tell us about that? Uh, if not, no worries, but, um, that's your, your next nonfiction book still. Yes, so uh, so the title is Inventor of the Future, uh, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller, and uh, that's coming out from Day Street Books, HarperCollins, uh, on August 2nd of next year. Um, and the book is, is essentially finished. You know, it's currently in the copy editing phase, but, um, you know, it's, it's been a three-year project, um, so about the same um, amount of time overall as astounding. But in, in many ways, it's a bigger book. It's longer. It's more complicated. Um, Fuller is a a figure kind of like Campbell, who I think is is fascinating and much more complex than people under, like tend to understand based on his public persona. And um, yeah, no, it's it's been really exciting. It's it, it's been to me a, a very um, organic follow up to Astounding because Fuller. Um, we talk about you know trying to enact a science fiction hero in real life, and he he came you know very close to that for a lot of people uh, when he was alive. Yeah, I, I read a little bit about him. I knew absolutely nothing about him before seeing that you were working on on a book about him. So I, I read a little bit, and just the the tiny amount that I read, uh, I was super interested. And I mean, the likelihood I was going to buy your next book already existed because I liked sounding as much as I did. But I'm definitely going to get it after reading what I read. I was like, oh well, this guy sounds amazing. So definitely going to get it. Look at yeah no it's 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 I think it's a, it's a better book I think I think I learned a lot from writing astounding about how to write this kind of biography and I think it's reflected in this new project. So what do you what did you what do you think you learned what's one thing specifically you think you learned that really helped you with this book because um, I, I it's that's interesting to me that you you would consider it a better book I mean I not that I don't think it would be but just I I'm curious what goes into your thought process around something like that. Well, it's, it's funny because like if you want to be a, like a novelist, there there are dozens of books out there, right? Like how to write a novel um, that are often very useful. Uh, there are there are, really aren't that many books on biography, <laughs> you know. There there aren't a lot of like you know how to books in like the writing section of Barnes and Noble about how to write a biography, and so you kind of just have to do it. Um, and with Astounding, I was kind of learning how to, to write a biography as I went along. And so stuff like how to manage my sources, how to keep notes, you know, how to sort of um, stay organized over the course of a two plus year writing process. You know, th- these are all things I had to learn on the job, essentially. Um, with Fuller, I kind of went in with this like um, like a like a body of good practices that I had acquired. Which served me very well because Fuller, if, if anything, is a more complicated subject. There's way more material out there about him. His his personal archives are enormous, and I don't think I could have um, even like begun to navigate that material without some of the skills that I developed with Astounding. Yeah, I was. That's one thing I wondered about: is do you just have 
a ton of folders, both digital and uh, like actual folders, just of material everywhere. How do you even come? How do you even start to keep some of that stuff straight? What's your do you have a system? Um, I mean, it, it kind of evolves in response to the uh, subject. Um, and, and in Fuller's case, just getting the chronology straight was very challenging because, um, you know, there's just so much information out there about him if you dig deeply enough. And uh, so, you know, yeah, so I had a spreadsheet that became kind of huge with essentially what he was doing almost every day of his life, you know, um, and that was kind of like my, uh, like the, the central uh, piece, you know, in the puzzle. And, uh, you know, tons of text files that I could search where I took notes from his books and his letters and other primary sources. I do have a ton of printouts that I, I, you know, were until recently occupying most of my office. Um, and yeah, just, you know, just, just trying to find a thread, you know, trying to find um, ways of retaining information um, because it's, it's more than I can keep in my head at once. And so being able to like take good notes, keep them in a place where they're searchable, uh, you know, knowing what's going to be useful six months down the line. Um, because often, you know, you, you read a book and you, you write some stuff down and then even a year later, you're like, where did I read that sentence that, that I, I want to I find? Um, and so you really are relying on your past self being organized. And so I think, I think that actually might be the biggest thing I, I, I learned, which was kind of like, knowing intuitively what the book is going to need and what's going to be important and making sure that I write it down in a way that I can find it, you know, months and months later. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Trying to cast into the future and be like, okay, well, I, I know this thing that I wrote down, it might potentially connect with this thing. Uh, that's super interesting. I, I, I can't wait to read it. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Um, kind of wrapping up uh the last thing i want to ask um what sci-fi are you reading now um or just what are you reading now just in general um but yes if there is sci-fi i'd love to hear about that too um you know i haven't read any fiction in a while it's 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 um it's one of the uh occupational hazards of uh, this kind of work where the amount of stuff i have to get through just to do my job expands to fill up all of my reading time, you know. So I don't have a, a lot of recommendations on the fiction front. Um, one book that I, I did read recently that I wanted to recommend that's coming out in March. Um, I was able to read an advanced copy of a book called Whole Earth by John Markoff. And it's a biography of Stuart Brand, uh, who was the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog. And um, another figure who I think you would find interesting, um, you know, I, I read the book because I find Brand really fascinating and he knew Fuller, you know, Fuller was an important influence on him. Um, but, you know, in terms of like, again, trying to enact science fiction values in the real world, Brand's story is, is really instructive um, because he, you know, he was a little bit older than the hippies, but he comes out of that same counterculture, right, of like the late 60s, early 70s. And he was, you know, the one who said, well, maybe we can use technology to solve these problems. You know, he was not very interested in like activism for its own sake. Uh, but he said, so what are some tools we can use to kind of build the future that you want? And, um, you know, it, it didn't quite go as planned. And, and you know, his, his story, as, as always, is more, more complicated than, you know, you would think. Um, but uh, it, it is a great book. Um, so, uh I, I, I do recommend that people um, in March of next year seek out a copy of, of Whole Earth by John Markoff. Yeah, I looked it up just as, as soon as you mentioned it, and it's definitely going on on my list. I will be I'll be buying that one as well. Um, well, I super appreciate you coming by. Uh, is there anywhere you'd like people to, to specific, specifically look you up online to to get a, a glimpse at your stuff? Yeah, um, so I have a blog that uh, is not super active these days, um, but if you look up my name, uh, you'll find it. And um, if you're interested in, in the subjects that I cover in Astounding, you know, the original draft of this book was twice the length of the version that was published. And I was able to repurpose a lot of that material on the blog. And so if you go to the page uh, called Science Fiction Studies, there are probably hundreds of blog posts that talk about particular stories, uh, interesting uh, anecdotes or, or, you know, side, like, like, like byways that I wasn't able to cover in the book itself. Um, so, you know, there's probably another whole book's worth of material there if you're interested. 
That's awesome. Yeah, any sci-fi fans, I, I definitely suggest go checking that out. Anyone that just likes bi- uh, biographical writing, go check it out. I know you'll like it. Uh, Alec, thank you so much for coming by. Oh, thank you. This was really fun. Thank you so much to Alec and Evel Ali for swinging by to chat with us here at Ledger. And thank you for listening. You can have a lot more to look forward to in the new year. I've got some stuff planned already for 2022. Might not be any more shows uh, in December here of 2021, but I also I do have one in mind, so we'll see. But uh, I really appreciate you listening. And if you like the show, tell people about it. You know, hop online, rate it. Uh, give it a review, that kind of stuff. Uh, all of that stuff really, really helps other people find the show. So I appreciate it. See you next time.